Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the aquarium. It's good to see all of you who are here in the auditorium, and I want to also welcome those of you who are watching online. I want to thank our Gazette newspaper sponsor and also Courtyard Marriott, that together they make this lecture series possible. Tonight, I'm pleased to welcome Mike Bartek, who's going to share photos from and discuss his experiences exploring the ocean at night in the Philippines. Mike grew up here in Southern California. He's been living in the Philippines for about the last 10 years. He's an avid diver and photographer whose work concentrates on the macrofauna of the Verde Island Pass in the Philippines. He conducts photo safaris, lectures, and seminars, and specializes in small benthic animals like frogfish and nudibranchs. His work has been published in Sport Diver and California Diver magazines, among others. Please join me in welcoming Mike Bartek. Jerry, and thank you, the Aquarium of the Pacific. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here, and um, I have a nice talk for you guys tonight. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, find it fascinating as I do. Even though I'm a uh, <clears throat> photographer that does concentrate on the benthic animal life, which is the small macro subjects uh, that we're more familiar with, like frogfish and, and so on, like Jerry was speaking about. Tonight, we're going to concentrate on talking about things that live offshore. In fact, that's mainly what blackwater diving is all about. And um, as we get into the talk, I'm going to describe some of what uh, that diving is about, some of the equipment that we use, and then show you some photos and tell a few stories about the encounters that I've been fortunate enough to have. So um, I guess I'll find my clicker and start. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, it's, it really is astounding to me that man knows more about the moon than we do about our own oceans. And I find that to be sadly true and you know our our oceans are full of life right from the surface to the deepest points that we've discovered from 32,000 feet or something I don't know what the depths are correctly but uh, you know there's just sea life at every single level they seem to concentrate in different areas for different reasons but um, you know it's just it's remarkable to me that there's so little known about our oceans I know this works okay so just to paint a little drama and to get this thing started, um, the kind of diving that I do in this talk, these images, is all conducted offshore at night. So to really paint a little drama on this, you know, imagine yourself in the open ocean at night, drifting, and you're all alone. So for most people that you know, uh, it can be a little bit creepy. And in fact, a lot of people would look out at the ocean at night and say, ooh, that's, that's not for me. But, you know, um, it's a place where I find very fascinating. And the animal life that comes up at night is just mind-boggling. So, uh, you know, voluntarily jumping into the open ocean at night, it's not for everybody. Although we do have one or two guests in the audience tonight that have done it with me. And it's a, it's a wonderful experience. It's, of course, something that you have to gear up for. <laughs> However, uh, diving in this environment is a place that I find myself working the most in it and I, that I really enjoy. 
and I really try to encourage others to try it. So if you ever come out to see me in the Philippines, you can count on me encouraging you to try this type of diving. Remember to never stop exploring. If my mom was here, I would say, Mom, this is not what it's about. <laughs> Most people think that if you're on a blackwater dive and you suddenly turn the lights on, that's what it's going to look like. But that's the furthest thing from the truth, so you have to get that kind of thought out of your mind when you're doing this type of diving. So we're going to talk about a specific area. Which one is the light? There we go. Specific area in the Philippines. And if you look at the Philippine Islands as a whole, you see this very, very deep ocean, some of the deepest oceans on the planet, right up against the islands of the Philippines. Both sides, before you go into this shallow plate here, you have very deep oceans. Deep oceans, Sulu Sea, the Celebes Sea, this whole plate, in fact, all the way over to the Birdhead Peninsula. I've actually dove all the way down, not on one dive, but uh, much of this area here. Uh, very, very um, rich in marine life. So the Philippine Islands surrounded by this very deep water. The water flushes through these islands back and forth with every tidal change. And just to get a little bit more direct, further in. So this is the Verde Island Pass here. This is one of the most marine-rich places on the planet. Not just because I say it to promote people to come out and see the resort but because it's based on fact. People that have done multiple uh, testings and, and research, and in fact, the California Academy of Science does regular research in this area several times a year, and they're continuously finding new animal life, and actually on, on uh, land as well as the sea. So the Verde Island Pass, Port of Galera, Anilao is right in here. We're surrounded by two giant bays, and just to get down a little bit further, this is what it really looks like on our peninsula. Manila's way up here. This is the Batangas Bay and then the Balayan Bay. Our resort is here. This is the Verde Island Pass. So this is the area that we launch from in the evenings, and we'll go out into this area here, or this area here, or actually drift this pass, and then out here. We try to look for very deep water. And um, when you find that deep water, that's when you're really going to start seeing this beautiful thing called a vertical migration. So our target subjects at night usually range uh, typically from different types of planktons. Okay, so what happens typically during the daytime is a lot of these planktons will um, live very deep during the sunlight hours, and they are dense. They kind of come into these large balls like krill and different things, and as the sun sets, these animals start to move upwards towards the surface in what's called a vertical migration. And we're not going to get too much into that, but David Attenborough uh, very eloquently describes the vertical migration as the greatest migration of, planet, uh, on an of animals on planet Earth. So, and I, I really believe that. As the sun sets, you get this massive migration of, of uh, marine animals moving up, and as they do, they disperse, and they have to feed, of course, and then before the sun rises, they go back down. But what's interesting is their predators are right on their tails. So the things that we are out there looking for are target subjects, really different types of planktons, developing and larval subjects. Now, these are things that are in the open ocean developing it, you know, uh, before they get enough strength to go to the substrate and become the subjects that we normally associate them to be. Uh, different types of jellyfish. 
different types of comb jellies and jellyfish. There's a quick delineation between the two. You have the jellyfish which pulsate, of course, and you have comb jellies that kind of ambulate on their own. They have little cilias, little rows of cilia that ambulates them through the water. Uh, then you have different types of crustaceans, of course, tunicates such as pyrosomes. Now, a tunicate is on the substrate, you might see a singular or a colony of singular tunicates. In the open ocean, these pyrosomes are these giant, massive colonial tunicates where you might have thousands of organisms living together, and I just assume they're making democratic decisions all at once to go left, go right, go down. I don't know how they decide, but they, they somehow uh, figure things out. So tunicates such as pyrosomes, larvations. Larvations are a very interesting little subject little clear kind of a house with a, a little tadpole looking creature inside that is a mucus feeder or builds a mucus house to trap different types of organisms and it feeds and um, very interesting phronomas and then finally we'll get down to the the really high value subjects as we move along the reason why I say this these are the kind of the typical things the, the last three or the last four actually the last three subjects not as typical uh, but when you roll off a boat, you'll generally see the top, the top subjects that we have there. Okay. Come on. There we go. So blackwater diving, it is different, as I described before, than uh, shore diving. So how this is done is generally offshore. And um, the idea for blackwater diving is not something that is entirely new. It was actually started... Um, as blue water diving, right? The, the idea of photographing planktons in their habitat, try to capture their uh, natural behavior in their environment was started uh, in theory by, this, by these guys, Wayne Hamner and company. When they were working on these giant vessels with these collection uh, devices, they're like, some of them are fine mesh nets, some of them are like a little conveyor belt kind of thing, whatever they are, they're bringing in these subjects and the things that they were collecting were actually just collapsing and being destroyed. So the methods that they had at, at, uh, at that time to collect the subjects was actually destroying the subjects they're trying to study. So one of the guys said, hey, you know, if we really want to study these subjects, we're going to have to jump over the side, go down, and take a look and see what they're actually doing there. And then we'll be able to see these subjects in their natural environment. And that's what this blackwater diving thing is all about. It's really about doing it, but not in the blue water. It's at night. That's why we call it the blackwater. In a nutshell, this is basically what we can see. A, a lot of different things exist at night, um, and they're affected in, by two things. One, the upward migration. So it depends on the time of the evening that you get in. Depends on the moonrise. Uh, depends on a lot of different factors. And also, it's affected by the current, the tidal current. So if you have a high tide with no moon, in theory, that's supposed to be the best time. Now, I've kept very detailed charts on all this data. And even saying all this, which I just did, um, it really doesn't matter. The thing is, you have to get out there and you have to do it. That's what I've learned. I've, I've gone, OK, this is going to be the best time. Let's go. And, and it's a dud. But other times, it's fantastic. So it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What does make sense is as it gets later into the evening or on a moonless night, it does, it does make a difference. You will see a greater abundance of different planktons. This is a video that I want to show to you guys, which is, uh, it's not running yet, obviously, but 
Very typical of what you'll see. Um, this is just going to kick off what, so when you guys see the still images, you'll understand what it's like underwater seeing these guys moving around. So if you could, please. Pyrosome. This is about the size of your thumbnail. That pyrosome um, massive. This is about the size of the palm of your hand. That's larvation. Pearlfish larvae. Pelagic squid. Comb jellies. That's a lobster larvae, actually. Phylosoma. This is interesting. You see the Cephalopod there. We're going to talk about this guy later on in the south chains. Jelly. They, can, they get really like satellite dishes. Lionfish, another small squid. Any guesses? Yep. Sea mantis, mantis shrimp. I think gymnosoma. Remember, these subjects, once they gain enough strength, will most likely settle to the sand. This is a phronema. It's laid the eggs inside of that cell. Yeah, this is 
This is a very special pipe fish. That's also a pyrosome. This squid is about this big. These pyrosomes, I've seen them up to 15 or 20 feet in length. There's just nothing that'll destroy it unless it's, I mean, unless something destroys it, it'll just keep growing. Yeah, so that's, that's on loan from me from a gal named uh, Nanette Van Antwerp, fantastic shooter. It took her about, uh, I don't know, maybe, go ahead. Took her maybe uh, two years to get all of those clips together, put them into a, a, a video a presentation that's that short. So, um, hi, Mom. <laughs> you made it. It was good because I, you won't see that shark photo. That's good. All right, so, yeah, I put this in there so you guys could kind of uh, go, wow, okay, he has his stuff together and he knows when to do it. But actuality is... It, there is really no data that supports, okay, this is the best time to go. Let's go next Thursday at 7 o'clock. It doesn't work like that. The truth of the matter is just going out there and going out with the mindset that you're going to just have that blackwater dive experience is what it's about. Kind of keep your expectations low, and you, you manage that. And um, it, Because if you go in with high expectations, as you know, you're setting yourself up for a big failure. So... I use these basic apps. I check the moon. I check the tide. I check with my guests. Okay, we're going. So to prepare for this kind of dive, it's very important. Uh, you're going to be, of course, drifting in open ocean, like we've said, at night. So you have to keep safety first. You want to make sure that there's some safeguards in place in case the divers are separated from the line, in case the boat can't find you, in case... Uh, there's a danger on the surface, and the divers are unaware of it. So you have to set up and prepare for these things, especially if you want to bring the public and teach people how to do this and repeat the dives over and over with success. So because of that, we've developed these different techniques. I have a downline. It's approximately 100 feet long. And on that downline, I, I use these lights. It's a 10,000 lumen light with uh, 8,000, 5,000, and then 1,000 and 20. I have a whole series of lights that come down, and uh, they're about 15 feet apart in each bay, the lowest light being almost 100 feet at depth. Attached to the uh, a mooring ball on the top, which I have a light inside of, and this is how it looks like at night. So you have this glowing bright orange buoy on the surface that my boat can see, and um, it makes the guests feel really safe that way. <laughs> Plus, there's a light, a nice bright column of light in the water. It gives you some reference. Unless you've ever jumped out of an airplane, you've probably never been in an environment in your life where you don't have any reference to land or anything that's stationary until you get into this situation. So having that light there also helps the guests not to get dizzy, disoriented, or something to that effect. So having that nice vertical column of light. So this is us, like I, I like to say, knees in the breeze. We're getting to, to roll off a little night vision there. This is actually a family. There's mom in the back, son and, and father. Really cool. So did you know that everything that starts here, except for basically mammals, sharks, and rays, almost everything develops in open ocean. 
A lot of people will see Nemo's. They'll look at the little nest. Oh, how cute. Look, it's mommy, the baby. They're all taking care of the eggs. No, that's not how it is. Those different Nemo fish at this uh, beautiful anemone all settled there. Once those eggs hatch, they go, they develop, they come back, and then they start settling on the different anemones. So it's, it's really remarkable between our concept of what reality is and what we see underwater, completely different. Everything that starts here, all these subjects, the eggs, the spawning, even octopus, they all develop. Once, once they hit that paralarval stage, they all start to develop in open ocean. Crabs. Here we see uh, crabs just coming out in a flurry, hatching. This, uh, it's actually, this is a squat lobster. It'll carry the eggs around in a little brood pouch here. Once those eggs are ready, phew, they just fly off into the pelagia and then begin to develop. Crabs in, uh, like this, it's not really crab, again, this is a lar lobster larvae uh, hatching there, but they'll have about 15 to 17 different stages of development. This is the, the subject that really got me going in the first place. So this is a, a, a wonderpus, okay? This is a subject that you'd normally see on the sand. You know, you'd go to any of these places in, the, uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia, and you'd be, you know, it'd be high on your list. Oh, I want to see a wonderpus. And it would be found on the substrate, like a normal octopus, hunting, foraging in the afternoons, moving around. But before it gets there, it has to start somewhere. So after it hatches, you will find these guys drifting in open ocean at night. And up near the surface, feeding uh, is a really a good place. Now, when I say up near the surface, I mean anywhere from 200 feet and up to the very surface itself. No, I'm not diving at 200 feet at night, but that's basically the zone that we're talking about. The things that really interest me, um, are the brooding behavior, after the brooding behaviors are the missing links, which I, which I would like to call them. Uh, the larvae, the settling phase, okay? These are the things that you don't typically see in books. Usually when you get an ID book, you will see the three basic phases of marine life, which is a juvenile phase, the reproductive or sex phase, and then the terminal phase of the fish. That's almost the, the formula that every single book that you'll get on identification will follow. But if you see the, some of the subjects that we're going to see tonight, like the stonefish in the middle, who knows what they are? They're very difficult. So to get those identified, it's, it's not an easy task. And most of the scientists that are out there that do this kind of research are highly specialized. So why one might specialize in one type of fish, another specializes in, none, in another, and they rarely agree on things. So um, Yes, so the, the missing links that I, I like to find or look for are the larvae, the settling subjects, and that's what we're really out there looking for. So here are a few places that I've been personally. There's other places to do this in the world, and I'm always encouraging people, you know, wherever you're at, try it. Even if you live near a lake, go for it. Uh, Anilao, Philippines, where I reside most of the time. I'm in Jungan Channel, which we were the first people to do it there, and it was fantastic. Uh, I built a downline there, and... Um, they were pretty like, what are you doing? No, you can't do this. But it was, it was great. Drift, well, it's OK. We're going to drift in open ocean right out there. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, Gulf Stream of Florida, fantastic. You're about five miles off. We've drifted up to nine miles on one night. Uh, Romblon Channel, Philippines, another very deep area. Ambon, Indonesia, Lembe Straits. These are just a few places that I've done it. So very typically, you're going to start seeing 
different types of jellyfish like this one. Uh, very small. This is about the size of your thumbnail. And the tentacles, those aren't photoshopped in. So a lot of times you'll see these subjects as you're drifting and glowing these different colors. And, and you know, it's very difficult to get that, the color out of the shots. So, you know, you really have to work your strobes and your camera very quickly and try to capture the best shot that you can. It's not like photographing a subject sitting on a rock, okay? These guys are moving, spinning, as you saw in that video. So you really, you have to be dialed into your dive skills. You have to be confident and just keep your eyes on the subjects and, and just work it. Comb jellies. Different types of jellyfish. Now, I find it very interesting that jellyfish are quite capable of surviving even though they're brainless and even though they, they don't have hearts. They are very capable of survival. In fact, probably some of the best survivors on the planet. You guys have been around since the beginning. That green light there is uh, my lowest down line. So I'm pretty low, Mom. <laughs> pretty deep. Different types of jellyfish. There is, um, I'm not quite sure how many hundreds and hundreds of different types of jellyfish there are out there. So, in general, you'll see specific types over and over almost in every dive, but every once in a while you see these different kinds of jellies coming through. And, um, you know, you just never know what you're going to get. This is actually the same jellyfish uh, as on the prior photo. This is the same one. It's kind of turned up a little bit. It's got a little uh, crab, I think, living on the top. Uh, I forget the name of it. Like It's almost like a parasite. This guy's about the size of your thumbnail, so pretty big, actually. This jellyfish is about the size, of, again, of, of my thumbnail, pretty good size. And uh, living under its bell is a drift fish, and not much is known about these guys. If you say drift fish, it's, there's a whole bunch of these fish that are falling under that category. So I suppose there's a lot of research to be done on these guys. A lot of these fish will just keep growing and continue to grow with these jellyfish. And as you can see with this trevally, which is the jellyfish and trevally are both about this long. And the trevally is actually steering that jellyfish around. So it's coming out, it's pushing it to the side, trying to get away from me, going down. Really kind of fascinating. But the, um, the fish is quite a bit bigger than that jellyfish. If you see, if you look at it you know, closely. Another jackfish with a jelly. Now this guy's trying to eat the jellyfish, but it's on its chin. So if you think about it, a jellyfish, if it gets up over its mouth, it won't be able to respirate. So this guy is really close to getting it. Jellyfish, as they get larger, will start attracting more and more fish. And they become like this little habitat as they drift along. So when we're, when we're diving, you're down about 60, 70, 80 feet, whatever it is. You have a big, powerful torch in your hand. You see something floating, if it's a jellyfish, you know almost invariably there's going to be some kind of passengers with it. So not only is it beautiful in itself, but also it will attract different subjects. So they make a really good target for us. This guy's about this big, pretty good size, 18 inches, I suppose. Another jellyfish, this guy's got a little fish hiding behind it. And sometimes you'll come up, you'll see the jelly, you're like, oh, cool. You'll, you'll line up on it and start shooting it, working it, and then all of a sudden a little head will poke out. So, yeah, it can be really cute sometimes. You're like, wow, where'd you come from? You know, and they're out there. These fish are out there. 
and they find these jellyfish like this. It's a, a great place for them to hide out, to gain strength, to get to a size where they can actually survive on their own or go down to the sand now and begin their other life or to the reef. So they really need this kind of uh, symbiotic partnership out there. Otherwise, they'll just be consumed by a predatory fish. So another type of, uh, of jellyfish, this, this guy, I'm not sure if it's part of the um, immortal jellyfish world or not. It's, the immortal jellyfish is very, very interesting. We're going to talk about it in just a second. But this one, you can see the bell is just loaded full of colors, oranges, greens, blues. And then the tentacles, which are sucked up at this point, uh, are very colorful. Also, bright, bright white. Almost, when you look at it with your lights, it's like it's overexposing. It's really just an amazing subject. Here's your immortal, immortal jellyfish. Now, the immortal jellyfish, this one in particular, the bill is about the size of an infant's fingernail. It's maybe smaller than, uh, you know, my pinky nail, the bell. But the tentacles, extremely long. And then it can fluff out. It's just really a very beautiful subject. The tentacles themselves, there's so many of them that it, it's just like it's fishing and then it just becomes this big mess. Now, you have to remember when you're underwater, if things are moving, you're moving, any other movement added to that will change the direction, the trajectory, everything. So as you're swimming along and you see these subjects, it's important that you just kind of drift with it and you try to photograph it to the best of your ability. No sudden movements. If you move your hand too fast, this thing will be spinning out of control. It'll suck up all the tentacles. Very hard to photograph. So the interesting, about, the interesting thing about the immortal jellyfish and the way it gets its name is that they are, in fact, immortal. They can live forever unless they're consumed, eaten, or destroyed by some, some kind of force of nature. Once they reach sexual maturity, they can actually reverse the process, go back to a polyp, or if there's something that poses a threat to their survival, like a uh, change of weather, maybe for some reason they get sucked in by a bilge on a ship and spit out somewhere where it's extremely cold, or vice versa, they can return to that polyp stage until they feel like it's time to actually blossom out again and start over. So nobody really knows how old the oldest immortal jellyfish is. Yeah, you have to Google that, because you know if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. <laughs> Pelagian Nocticulata, these, these jellyfish are quite common, and it's probably one of the only scientific terms I'm going to use all night. <laughs> um, very quite common. I, I know they use them a lot in science. They're easy to raise. They're easy to, to keep in captivity. Um, and, you know, the fish seem to come to these guys. They serve a huge purpose. This is a very common type of jellyfish that we see a lot, and um, they go to good use. So. Here we have these uh, shrimps. These are small shrimps living on the meticulata. So when you're, when you're out there, you're, you're diving, and you, you'll see it's very dark. Remember describing the beginning of the drama? Imagine pitch black at night. It is pitch black. And without that glow of the light, all you have is your flashlight. And a lot of times, we'll swim well off and out of that glow. So you're just using your flashlight. It's pitch black. And then you'll see something moving, rotating. And you know, it's like, wow, what is that? It's so foreign. It's really just an amazing experience. So, you know, as you get closer, you see these things. This is quite large, I guess, maybe two inches. But it's spinning very fast and almost out of control. And the jellyfish wants control of its own trajectory and its own life. And uh, the shrimp has different ideas. So 
they're kind of battling each other and moving along, spinning out of control. This guy, another, this is a, a phylosoma or lo lobster larvae, quite large, but almost transparent. If you see its body, it's, it's like a small, thin piece of plastic. You can see right through it, and you look at these things, where is its organs? I mean, how does it function? Right? It looks like a, a clear piece of glass. But it, again, it's living on one of these uh, very common jellyfish, kind of spinning and moving. And here's another one that we see surfing on a, on a comb jelly. I like this one because it really looks like he's just cruising. And out of all of these other ones that are just spinning around out of control, this one seemed very organized. Just really kind of surfing, actually. Here we see a, a file fish, and it's drifting with, with this type of uh, naticulata, again, very common. And i um, not sure if it's consuming it or if it's just using it for safety or, or what's going on there. But like I said, we see this kind of relationship with this particular kind of jellyfish uh, quite often. Now, when I shot this guy, uh, the first time I saw this was down in the Menjungan Channel. Jumped in, drifting along. Wow, very small. So this is entirely about an inch long with, with that small uh, octopus, maybe a quarter of an inch on the top, and then that jellyfish uh, underneath it, hanging on to the top. But is it, a jelly, is it actually a, an octopus? And we're going to talk about that later on. Is it actually an octopus? Phylosome, uh, pyrosome, again. This pyrosome is not enormous. This one is small. This one is maybe the size of, of a thimble. And when I photographed this one, it didn't look blue. It looked, you know, like a regular kind of um, somewhat transparent comb jelly. So when I shot the photo and you see it, you know, when you shoot digital, you have that instant return. Wow, it was cobalt blue. I couldn't believe it. I shot and shot and shot and drifted. And the boat had to chase me down. <laughs> So here's another one. Pyrosomes can be different colors. Most of the time they're pink. They kind of resemble a small paint roller. Uh, that's the most abundant size that we see them in. You can see them in all different kinds of oceans. California for one. Um, all over the place in the world. They exist in almost every single ocean. Inside of those pyrosomes a lot of times you'll see shrimps. Different kinds of fish that shelter in there against till they get strong enough to leave the roost. So a lot of times when I'm, when I'm Working with guests, I, I try to tell them, don't change the course of the pyrosome. Don't touch it. You know, be very careful because this fish inside will get spooked, swim out, and then be consumed in just in a few minutes. I mean, it might seem like there's nothing around you. That's because you're there. And as soon as you're out, the party starts again. Uh, so, you know, these, these poor guys won't last very long. This is looking in inside of the open end. Really, it's like a, a conical... Paint roller is exact, but one side's open. Stuff will climb in there. Shrimps will live on the outside. Fish inside. Shrimps, different things. So the shrimp living on the inside. Sea uh, sea anemone. This is a larval sea anemone. This big blanket or carpet-looking things that grow and get giant that host nemos and different types of shrimps and crabs. This is what they start like, start out like. And again, very small. You have to think small when you're photographing this stuff. Most of my shots. Are, that I photograph in this uh, talk tonight have been cropped probably 60 to 70 percent, if not more on some of them. Like this guy for sure, this is what I call the 10 percent crop ratio where you're keeping 10 percent. <laughs> so this is a mollusk veliger, very, very uh, common type of subject that we would see. 
It's named the Veliger because of the vellum on the, on the arms here. Or they're not arms, right? They're vellums. But it's a small mollusk, and it has a cute little face here. And these guys are spinning and rotating and very small. Again, think, think small. Very, very small subject, but very cute. Now, this guy is quite different. Remember the one we saw in the video? It's a prosobranchia veliger. So this guy also has a little shell and a little cute little face. But what catches your attention is the beautiful, colorful vellum, the foot. This is the, just extraordinarily beautiful, all different colors. It looks like a little Christmas lights as it twinkles past you. And we think this is a pteropod or some kind of a worm. I think there's more worms on the planet than any other animal. I heard the other day. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but we, this is either an animal, uh, a worm of some kind. You see the banding there? Some kind of a worm or, um, I don't know, maybe somebody else knows, pteropod. Pteropods. Pteropods are very interesting. Uh, this guy is a, uh, a small mollusk that has two wings. And the wings are tucked in on this one, but I believe that it's spawning or it has the eggs out. It's, uh, again, think small. And not all the time you'll see these guys spawning like this. Only a few times I've seen them, and it seemed like all of them were spawning on the same night, which makes sense. And other nights, uh, not so many. I was reading about these guys today, and they find them from the surface, which is, you know, zero to 200 feet, all the way down to the, the deepest depths of the ocean, although they're not usually found below 500 meters. This is not a bikini top. This is actually <laughs> two pteropods. I put that on Facebook, and somebody said, whoa, it's a bikini top. Anyways, yeah, very interesting. There's a two of them here mating again, coming together. And here it is spawning with the little eggs out there. I guess if there's somebody that knows more about this than I do, which I probably expect there is, uh, maybe you can instruct me on what's actually happening. And the gymnosomata, or the uh, sea angels, sea butterflies, very beautiful. Again, small, but, you know, it's tricky. You'll see these guys, and you'll say, wow, they are so beautiful. But you have to remember, they are a ferocious predator in their world. In their world, they're voracious. They're, they're, they never stop eating, and they're looking for anything that they can, that they can eat. <laughs> Again, this is Atlanta Pirani. I know that name because it's just so weird, you know. Atlanta, whatever. Anyways, uh, it's a heteropod, so these guys are a little bit different than a pteropod. Very, very small. The shell is almost transparent, and when you see it in the water, kind of fluttering, moving like this, you'll see them kind of moving around. And uh, again, hard, difficult to photograph, and I'm told there's a very obvious way to tell the male from the female, but I'm not sure uh, <laughs> about that. So here's another pteropod. Uh, I'm sorry, heteropod. This guy is moving around, feeds on pteropods. So this guy is quite large, so probably the size of my entire pinky. Moving around, just its mouth is open, eating all these little pteropods. You know, you would think, wow, it's such a peaceful environment, but no. These things are really living uh, from moment to moment. And transparency out there is the only thing that's protecting it. So the transparency gives them, of course, a way to conceal themselves from others a way to hunt and, um, and different methods for survival. This is a sea elephant. Yeah, again, about the size of my uh, pinky now. So this guy is a heteropod. Again, eats the pteropods. They, they have the eggs back here. 
So the egg can get quite enormous. They actually can get a shell too, and I, I haven't seen any photos uh, of these yet um, with the shell, but I'm eventually I will. Uh, this is about the size of it in relation to, I don't know, a giant screen. It's like, oh, really? It's that big? <laughs> but, you know, about the size of, of your uh, pinky finger, I probably would say, uh, on this guy. I've seen them smaller, but that's probably the largest I've seen. The smaller ones are generally very difficult to photograph, but uh, this is just how it swims also. The surface is on the top, way up top, and it's swimming. Its actual orientation, if you were to think of it in reference with the top and the bottom, it's upside down. So the proboscis should be facing down, you would think, but it's, that's, that's how it is. Yeah. Crabs and crab larvae, very interesting. You can basically break it down into zoas and megalopus. So uh, again, 16 or 17 different stages of, of crab development. So when we're out there and we're diving, we see these different types of crab zoas. No idea. I mean, imagine how many crabs are on the substrate. How many? Uh, thousands, right? So we're not really sure which one it is, which one it belongs to, or, or what. So uh, they're very interesting subjects. This is another crab zoe. It looks like a giant mosquito, only except for it's about this big, <laughs> very small, maybe a quarter of an inch at best. And some of these things just look like a little speck, but they're moving weird. Everything might be moving right to left or left to right, and then something is moving the opposite direction. So when you see that, oh, yeah, okay. It's moving on its own power. And, and you know that's what really draws your attention to it to start with. Another different type of crab zoe. And remember, this guy is spinning very quickly. And with your, your lights, when you're trying to photograph, you have to have enough light so your camera can actually focus, so you can see the subject. And that light, enough, it, that light alone is enough to make that subject start to spin. So you know, you'll see it. You really have to become accustomed to shooting fast or pre-focusing. This is um, a sea mantis. So this is what they look like in open ocean. Transparent carapace, big eyes still because they need those eyes to survive. And then this is what they look like on the substrate. Quite different. Quite different. I'm not sure if these two are actually the same species. Um, but I just went by the eyes, circular eyes. Okay. <laughs> the frontum is a very interesting subject. So the frontuma. This guy in the middle, something James Cameron, I think, fashioned for, I think it was James Cameron, for the uh, movie The Alien. Is that James Cameron? Okay, whoever it was. Uh, took the idea from the front of it. It has four eyes, two here and then two lower down on the head. They actually have chromatophores. They can change the colors of their pigment on, this, on their tail, on the claws, and in different areas. So these guys free float. They drift until they find a salp chain. And they'll get into that salp chain and chew its way through and break it apart so there's a single barrel. They'll eat the interior of that salp out and then lay their eggs. Then they use that barrel as protection, drifting through the open ocean with its tail sticking out, like we see this one here. It'll lay the eggs on the inside. It doesn't have the eggs in this image. And then it'll use it as its little, little uh, foster, not foster care, baby care. Is it foster care? No, foster care. <laughs> what am I talking about? Yeah, it's a little, little uh, baby hatchery. It'll keep all the eggs in there. It tends to them very carefully. And um, so very fascinating animal. When you see these guys, they're about this big, little maybe four inches maximum with that salp. The salps can get quite large, but that little frontum will be inside there. This is a very interesting subject for us to find. 
This guy looks like a very angry mahi-mahi larvae. I had to glean this one off top, off the internet. I couldn't find a real live photo, so I just, it's a cartoon. It's on loan, right? Yes. This is an interesting photo here because you can see the eyes are on both sides. I mean, I'm sorry, the eyes are on one side of its head. So when you see flounders or larval flounders, the eyes are not on both sides of the head yet. So this one is really close to settling. And this one was, in fact, shot close to the reef. This is maybe 60 feet of water above a reef and above sand. So it was in an environment where there was a bottom. Uh, so we knew that it was there. We used lights hanging from the boat and lights on the substrate, bringing in different types of plankton. This is a style of diving we call bonfire diving. It's a little bit different than black, black water diving, but will, it will attract a lot of similar kind of subjects. You don't get that real open water experience. It's a little different, but it's fun if you don't have access to boat, if you don't have access to, uh, or you just don't have the dive skills, or you know, maybe it scares you a little bit and you want to get some experience first. It's a good way to do it. The interesting thing is the eyes have already migrated in comparison to the flounders we'll see in open ocean. So these guys, the eyes have not yet migrated. These guys can get very beautiful. Different types of lures. Well, it's not actually a lure. <laughs> I've been corrected by a scientist. No, that's not a lure. That's very assuming to say that's a lure. Can't be lure. Okay, well, maybe it's a feeler. No, that's very assuming to say it's feeling its way through. What is it? We're not sure. Okay, so it's this lure-looking like thing, but we're not sure what its function is. Imagine it's luring or feeling its way through the dark. <laughs> Here it is coming straight at you. So, you know, a lot of times when you're shooting, as a photographer, I want to make creative, beautiful images, but this style of diving doesn't often lend itself to that. That's what makes it so interesting it's really natural you're in the water you're just trying the best that you can to make that photo not sure about this guy i know it's kind of a soft photo but we call this guy elvis just call him elvis <laughs> different kinds of uh, flounders we thought this was an eel at first but it turned out to be some kind of a flatfish another flatfish this is this is actually what we call a, a mimic sole. And when it's on the substrate, it looks almost just like this guy. In fact, I would say this thing is just a few days off from settling to the sand. Um, so it looks very similar to this, very cute face. Again, small, you're starting to get a little bit larger, maybe an inch on the size of this guy, where the other ones are maybe a little bit smaller. This is a tongue fish. Now, a tongue fish. If you look it up and Google it, you know, you maybe want to Google it right now if you wanted, but if you Googled it, you would see that a tongue fish looks like a brown little flat kind of teardrop-shaped fish, and they're not very pretty at all on the substrate. But in open ocean, wow, you know, uh, just a complete different, and it really is, obviously, it's a complete different world. So how do you know it's a tongue fish? Well, it was identified very quickly to me because it has a stomach that protrudes from the body, and I guess there's only one or two subjects that have been discovered so far that has that feature. So there's, the, I guess, the tongue fish and maybe a cusk eel or something to that effect. So I have a, a Facebook page where we put these things up and uh, from all over the world, different people that contribute, and there's a lot of scientists in there. So when I put this up, I said, oh, what is this crazy subject? 
And one guy chimed in, oh, that's a tonguefish. Another guy, no, that's a cuskiel. So now you just sit back and let them battle it out. What is it really? So I have no idea. They just said it was a tonguefish, so that's what I'm going with. This guy was very, actually pretty large, and uh, maybe three inches. And, and we shot this in Florida. I shot this one in Florida. While I was there, I managed to photograph this subject that turned out to be what they said was uh, the larval version of the Goliath grouper. So again, very small. What's interesting is a lot of these subjects have these spiny appendages that stick off of them like this. A lot of the crabs you'll see will have these long spiny appendages, you know, and, and it thwarts off an attack from a larger predator. And you try to get your mouth around that and guess what's going to happen. So uh, you have to be very careful, right? Eels, very small. This one actually looks like it has some bite marks in it. Not sure what this is. Not sure what kind of fish this is. It has these little floats, like oil pouches. Um, not really sure. We saw this earlier in the video. This is a pearl fish. Anybody know where the pearl ship fish lives without looking at the, <laughs> at the caption? Ouch, yeah. So when you see these guys, you're like, ooh, I'm glad I'm wearing a wetsuit. <laughs> yeah, so they can get quite large, about this long, full-grown, living inside the anus of a sea cucumber. So uh, if you're ever photographing a crab in there or something, you, know, you might see its head poking out. That's, that's where they live. It hasn't found its host yet. This is actually a sea cucumber. So when you're out there, maybe this is where they meet. Hey, buddy. Hey, I, I have a great idea. <laughs> no, no. So yeah, sea cucumber, uh, very interesting. This is a, a small, uh, very small, again, larval stage before it settles to the sand. Guess what this is? Anybody? Nudibranch. So I guess there's two different types of pelagic nudibranchs so far that have been described. And this, is, this happens to be one of them. Um, you know, and this, this guy is moving around like this, you know, unlike the slugs on the substrate. <laughs> this guy is really active. Pompano. So you're drifting along, and like I said, that light is your only kind of guide through the water, and you see these things. Wow, what is that coming drifting in? These long pennants and banners, really elaborate, elaborate kind of. Uh, design on this fish, and it's remarkable. The, the body itself of the fish is, on this one, probably the size of the palm of my hand, maybe smaller. But the pennants are really elaborate, maybe feet long, just two, three feet long, and streaming off. And the first time I saw one, is I only saw one alone, and my friend said, oh, they always travel in pairs. Really? Okay. So the second time, they were, in fact, in a pair. And that was just this big mass coming through the water, shining, just really beautiful. And you'd wonder, how can you guys be hidden like that? What's, where, how are you protecting yourself? Can't everything in the world see you? But I guess not. So uh, this is a, lar a late larval stage uh, Moorish idol. So I know you, do you guys have any Moorish idols? No, this is all cold water, right? No Moorish idols in the tanks? Do we have? OK. So, you know what the Moorish idols look like in the, in the tanks here, and uh, like Hawaii, South Pacific, um, Southeast Asia, different areas that have them. But here we, we see the uh, developmental stage. So it's still very silverish, kind of a blue sheen on it, very beautiful with this very long, elaborate pennant. Soapfish. And this is the kind of fish that I would just swim past 
if I was shooting photos on a reef, you just, you know, it's kind of this, well, it's not a very pretty fish. It has a little beard, which is interesting. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's one of those fluff fish that you would put into an ID book. Oh, I need an extra page. Oh, so fish in there. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's just one of those. But in the open ocean, when it's a developmental phase like this, my God, it's striking. And the body is so small with those big, giant, yellow, bright fins and a nice, long pennant. And trying to get that into one frame is almost impossible. Different types of scorpion fish. Now, there's a lot of scorpion fish, right? So we're not sure what kind it is. Flying fish at the surface. These are really special. You know, you would think flying fish, as you're driving along whoosh, over the boat, is that a flying fish? Well, when you're out there and you slow down a little bit and you see them in their habitat, they can be very beautiful. I don't think the California flying fish is quite this pretty, but the ones that we have in our area are very, very beautiful, colorful. This is one right at the surface, so it's got the reflection in the, in the surface itself there. And a lot of times when, we're, when it's a calm night, which we don't get a lot of super calm, flat, glassy nights. There's usually some kind of movement. But once in a while, you'll get these flat, calm nights where the water is as flat as a stage. No movement whatsoever. And that's when you want to just drift out there almost snorkeling, looking for these guys, because the reflections are just, just incredible. So the, this guy is a really good example, a Japanese uh, snake blenny. Not a, not a sea snake, but this is what it looks like on the substrate. The behavior is the same. If you've ever tried to photograph one of these on the substrate, you're trying to shoot it, then all of a sudden it takes off backwards, tail first right into its hole, and it's gone. It does that in nature, except for it doesn't have a hole. It'll come, I mean, in the open ocean. It doesn't have a hole there, obviously. So you'll try to photograph, it'll come right to you, and then it'll take off backwards. Like, oh, man. So try to, oh, man. So you find yourself chasing it and cussing. Oh, man, I fit you. Oh, come on. So that, yeah, you're shooting, 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 and uh, you might get a couple of nice shots. It takes a little practice. And once you start learning the behavior, uh, you'll, you'll be more inclined to, to getting better photos. Does that mean I'm getting low on time? OK, I better hurry. <laughs> I'm going to hurry this along. We'll talk about inshore squids, offshore squid hunting tactics. Glass squids, a lot of different types of cephalopods, wonderpus, long arm octopus, seahorses. Yeah, we'll go through this fast. This is Menjongan Channel. I just want to get get to the right right to the end on this. This is a, a Venus sea girdle. Uh, remember in that video. This one turned to all multiple colors. Very, very amazing. I've never seen him do that before, ever before that or since. Drift fish. Another singular drift fish. Very small subjects. Any guesses? Anybody? No? Close. Stargazer. Lionfish. Following the trail clues. Okay, we're right at the end. And this is going to be fun. <laughs> okay, so uh, one night we're going to a night dive, and I, I had my boatman, Tio Apo, our neighbor, 
hey, drop me off here. Oh, no, 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 he's real kind of grumpy. No, 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 yeah, yeah, Peter, just drop me off. Come pick me back up on the way back. Okay, so he picks me back up, and I'm showing him some of the photos that I was shooting in this place that I thought it was great. And he, and he looks at some of the photos, and, then he, and he says, oh, he doesn't like to fish in that area anymore because they won't let him catch Nautilus anymore. And I thought, what? You're catching Nautilus out here? Where? Oh, just there. Okay, well, take me just there. Let's, let's go. Let's go and see what they look like. So I um, started doing a little research on them and uh, to find out that the Nautilus, the male paper Nautilus, is which what we're finding, the male paper Nautilus, first of all, doesn't produce a shell, but it can oftentimes be found in these salp chains or on jellyfish in the shallows hunting for female at night. So I actually, in this hunt, didn't know I'd already been seeing them. <laughs> I didn't know it. So in this shot, you'd think, wow, it's an octopus. No, it's actually a male uh, paper nautilus. So the AIANS, very small, right in the Velager right there. Uh, extreme sexual dimorphism from the female, which means the females can get quite large, the male is quite small. Extreme, so one is much larger than the other. The male doesn't produce the shell, oftentimes found in, uh, right in the salp chains or on salp chains or different types of subjects. This is the female. So my guest found the first female, the first one ever been seen there besides being caught. And um, that was back in December, and it was on this dive, and he swam over to me and showed me the back of his camera underwater. I'm like, dude, show me, show me, show me. And of course, we couldn't refine it. So we kept diving, kept diving, and started to find these females. And to see these guys, gals, in a, their natural environment is really just special. Really, they've never had to evolve. They've never had to change to their environment. They've, they've always lived the same way. So the female produces the shell from the, her arms. She puts them up, secretes this type of uh, mineral-based potion, and it becomes the shell, two halves, which she lays the eggs inside. So the female is much larger than the male, produces that shell with the six and seven arm, comes to the surface at night to trap air in the shell, and it gives her buoyancy. A lot of times we'll see her drifting along on banana leaves, under a piece of trash, with the jellyfish. Really remarkable finds. I like the little hat. Looks like a little hat. Dr. Seuss character. It's natural predator, the blanket octopus. These are things that fables are made out of, stories you hear of. But no, it's the truth. We see these things in the open ocean. A blanket octopus can get quite enormous. And if you just Google them up, you'll see some of the stuff out there. Again, a lot of uh, sexual dimorphism in these guys is extreme. In fact, it's the most extreme in all of nature, where the females are, are huge, actually, and the males are very, very small. And somehow, they get along just great. <laughs> so the, the blanket octopus uses that webbing between their arms, webs over those nautilus, beaks down on them, and feeds on them that way or it just collects other small subjects that can prey on. This one is about the size of my forearm bone, I guess, or um, maybe this, this long. Again, another shot. This guy was at about 85 feet. I was low on air, took a few photos. See you later. This is a chance of a lifetime. So this, this one is a female blanket octopus. Uh, this is about a meter or three feet in length. I was swimming back to the downline towards the end of a dive, and I see it moving across like a shadow 
across that downline. It looked like a giant jellyfish. And I thought, wow, a giant jellyfish. I got my strobes ready. And as I got closer, I thought, no, is that a giant ray? What is it? Until I could see the color, like purple and green, just like this. Then I realized, my god, it's a blanket. It's a huge blanket octopus. So I, sh I started shooting photos with it. It was orbiting my downline. I was at about 45 feet, really, really low on air, making circles, making circles. And the guests that were with me had already gotten out of the water. I kept shining my light back to the line just in case. Lo and behold, one of my guests was able to come out and have the same experience and photograph the subject. So there's two of us on the planet that have shot a live, real blanket octopus with eggs in nature. And uh, so, you know, this brings us right to the end. Thank you. Glad I didn't drink any coffee. Um, <laughs> it's been a wonderful experience being here and talking to you guys tonight and sharing my experiences with you. Uh, I really encourage you guys to get out there and to try it. Thank you to everybody that's made this possible and uh, keep on exploring. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for a couple of questions. If you raise your hand, I'll bring a microphone to you. While somebody's thinking, you know, when we open our new expansion, the first gallery is an art gallery, and it's going to open. We're going to be alternating between coral reefs and the world of plankton. Before you go back to the Philippines, I'd like us to get together to talk sure. about whether we could get access to some of your images, or some of the best I've ever seen. Besides the obvious dangers associated with diving, what are some of the environmental dangers that are posed? Environmental dangers? You mean? Uh, Other from, fish? From animals? Animals. Sharks? Snakes? Sea snakes? Um, actually, sea snakes, we don't see that many out there. Uh, sea snakes have very small teeth, even though they're extremely venomous. Uh, I don't think there's any recorded attacks in history. Um, on them, you know, on human attacks. Sharks, we can see sharks. Yeah, it's possible. But, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you go in the, into the water thinking about. In fact, it's the furthest thing from your mind, and we don't talk about them on the boat. <laughs> okay, we've got one over there. Mike, how many of those items can we actually see in these waters? In these waters? Yeah, as far as like a Venus girdle, self chains, yeah. uh, the the turnix you can see salp chains you can see the um the the pyrosomes you can see a lot of this stuff but um you know i'm not really sure and we're going to start going out here very shortly in the next few weeks if there's any volunteers in the audience <laughs> you, you okay got so we're going to be going out and doing <laughs> yeah, we're going to be going out and doing some blackwater dives just offshore here so uh, maybe a few miles off so we'll find out that's very a very good question, and, and that's rattling around in my head. I want to try black water and cold water, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah, there's, there's, once you get off, like we used to do blue water, like I was saying before, blue water, right off Dana Point. So the shelf comes in close, five miles off. You're over extremely deep, 6,000, 7,000 feet of water. So, you know, the, the kind of stuff that you see getting pushed up there and that little conveyor belt of food that's moving along, a lot of different planktons, jellies, a lot of that stuff exists, so why not some of these other things? Yeah. Back over there. We'll get to you. We've got several over there. I want to thank you. Um, your presentation was 
be on phenomenal. Thank you. I, I'm not real familiar with all of this that you were sharing, but I want to find out is that whole area protected where people can't try to fish or steal some of them and take them home, so to speak? And the other thing is, in that area, is it seasonal, depending on the time of the year, that you'll see some of these um, beautiful um, things you shared with us, more plentiful, maybe in the fall, spring? Is there such a thing as seasonal um, availability, more frequent or less frequent? Uh, so, so two questions. The first one really was, uh, is there anybody protecting the area? Um, you know, in our area, there are zones that are protected. There are MPAs. There are MPAs in place, and you can see the difference uh, in the MPA as opposed to the life outside of the MPAs. But that being said, it's a very, uh, the Philippines, people are fishing to live and survive. It's much different than in the U.S. People are catching the fish and eating the same day, selling them to their neighbors. So it's not uncommon to be on a, on a dive boat with two or three of my buddies we, uh, and, and see fishermen right there. Or at night, net fishermen, which poses one of the dangers, the net fishermen drifting. And the nets are, are short, maybe from here to the wall away, but still um, not the kind of thing you want to encounter when you're on a night dive. <laughs> the other thing uh, you asked was a seasons, seasonal. Yes, the ocean's seasonal, absolutely. I grew up diving here in California, and same dive sites repeatedly, and you could see it changing Definitely changing, very, very beautiful. And yes, uh, some of these subjects are more prolific at certain times of the year than others. You're welcome. Now, the technical aspect of this is very interesting. You might want to include a few pictures of your gear and such, but with the, the narrow field of focus you have with micro subjects, I bet the change from film to digital saves a lot of money and having to just shoot and shoot and shoot. You're right, yeah. Digital is cheap. Yeah. Now keep shooting. That's quite true, and, and you know, the thing about digital photography is you have an immediate response. So you can shoot a photo, you see the response. With film, um, you could have something, you know, that's not quite right, and you get home and you look at the images and wow, I made a big mistake. <laughs> so. Yeah, I had a question. Um, you mentioned like a lot of the subjects were really, really small, like the size of your thumbnail. Yeah. So I guess you're using a macro lens, but at times like you were shooting something larger. So do you normally use a macro lens or something a little bit larger, depending? No, I use a 60 millimeter macro lens on a APS-C camera, which is uh, a D500 I'm currently using. Uh, so 60 millimeter lens is generally the workhorse macro lens uh, before you would get into more specialized like super macro. So it, it has a, a somewhat, a uh, nice angle of view, a wider angle of view, and you know it lets you focus down to one-to-one -one reproduction ratio. So I can shoot subjects right off the end of my lens port. You know the working distance on that lens is 5.5 inches, and I can get a one-to-one -one reproduction ratio. What does that mean in technical terms? I can get really close and make it look big. I got then one I can over crop here. The heck out of the photo. <laughs> Just a comment about the uh, breadth of the interest of the aquarium. A few years ago, we actually had an opera performed here called Paper Nautilus. Just wanted you to know, we're, we're, we're ahead of the times. We actually have Paper Nautilus here off coast California. And the shells have been seen quite frequently. So I, I'm really interested to get out there and look for these guys. And you know, you'd be surprised. It's not the deep water that hosts these guys. They like to come in close. So I'm hoping that we can find them right here in Redondo or Palos Verdes area. 
We'll take one more, and then all of those who want to volunteer to go night diving will have to come up and give us your name. Um, I'm not familiar with the uh, ocean in the Philippines, but all of these um, subjects that we saw are really small. So are they eating like plankton from like from whales? Do whales eat them, or yes. who are their predators? Yes, some of the so the the master predators are whales. They the largest subjects on Earth are supported by the most smallest subjects that are in the oceans. You know, it's really crazy the way the the whole system works. But somebody's worked it all out just right. Mike, thank you. These are spectacular photographs, and we thank look you. forward to being able to show some of them in our new. Thank you very much. Thank you Thanks, all for buddy. coming.